Hey everybody, I'm Brandon David. Welcome to Investing in Cannabis. Today's show is all about hemp and CBD. We have Michael of Centuria, which is the largest manufacturer of hemp in the U.S. But spoiler alert, they don't grow it in the U.S. They import it. Fascinating discussion about how they started, the efficacy of hemp, and why if you are using CBD-based topicals, the only thing in those topicals that are helping you is everything but the CBD. Big claim, fascinating episode. You're going to learn a ton. I was shocked. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. Michael, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Excited to talk about hemp and the future, uh, but welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, let's get you started just on an easy one. What is Centuria? Uh, Centuria is uh, currently the largest manufacturer by gross tonnage of, uh, of, of biomass um, and, and oil in, in North America today. So you make more hemp oil than anyone in the U.S. currently? Last year, we uh, we passed 300 tons, and uh, that's about double the output of Washington. That's about 10 times the output of the MMPR um, in, in Canada, uh, and about half of the entire Colorado market combined. Wow. Uh, and explain what you mean by biomass versus oil. How, how does that come together? Uh, biomass would be uh, 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 plant-based material. Um, uh, could involve uh, flour from you know, from other nurseries. Uh, could be any parts of the plant. Uh, it's just a great metric on how to identify uh, just size size of nurseries, throughput, uh, gross output, etc. Wow. Yeah. And take me through kind of the um, individual products that you guys provide. Uh, we provide standardized extracts in a number of concentrations, uh, primarily uh, uh, base ingredients for other product manufacturers. So we have, uh, you know, five percent uh, e-liquids uh, that are blended with propylene glycol. We have uh, eighteen and twenty-five percent uh, oils that um, uh, are used in uh, in uh, metered cartridges. Uh, we create. Uh, oil that's in the 75 to 90 percent um, concentration that has non-detectable amounts of THC for markets like Canada, South uh, South Korea, and Japan. And then, of course, you know, 99 percent isolate. Got it. Um, talk about sort of the differences. I think this is one of the things that people don't really uh, have their head wrapped around is the difference between whole plant and the isolate and kind of take us through the different classes there if you would. In terms of medical efficacy, I think that uh, I think the entire industry will agree that whole plant medicine is absolutely uh, the most efficacious uh, method uh, of consuming cannabis. Um, the entourage effect uh, is something that we're all familiar with, and so when you have the highest ratio of other entourage molecules to the active of interest, whether that's THC or cannabidiol, um, that that molecule um, uh, uh, functions better in the human body. Okay. Um, and then how about the distinction between hemp CBD and the cannabis-derived CBD? Uh, it, uh, if, if you're looking at cannabidiol uh, as an ingredient, um, 
then it, mo molecules are molecules. Uh, if you're looking at what other constituents that may or may not have any effect on how that cannabidiol functions inside the human body, um, then if you look at um, you know whole plant or flower, flower-derived CBD um, could have a different effect than hemp-derived CBD, which does not have as uh, broad of a terpene profile. Got it. Um, but this is a pretty hotly debated subject. Uh, there's a couple bills going through Congress at the moment, um, sort of, uh, if I correct me if I'm wrong, trying to separate the hemp derived CBD and, and hemp as a whole from cannabis products and the schedule one nature of that. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that struggle? We really don't get involved in speculation of, uh, of, of federal policy or laws. Um, as you know, uh, the federal government moves very, very slowly and they're incredibly fickle. So uh, we've seen bills be introduced uh, for the last 15 years uh, that affect uh, both you know, cannabis policy here in the United States and, and how businesses can function um, because of those. Um, and frankly, we see you know, very little movement. And when we do see movement, it, it's very slow. And so frankly, we really don't pay attention to bills that get introduced uh, into a committee because they rarely make it through. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Um, maybe you can talk about sort of the, uh, is, is hemp being curtailed? Is it being hurt by the fact that it's that schedule one today? Uh, not at all, actually. Uh, I think if you look at the, if you watch the uh, the uh, HIA versus DEA um, uh, Ninth Circuit court case that uh, the, he the hearing on February 15th of this year um, that our, our company is, is a party to, um, the DEA themselves uh, admitted that you know, foreign, foreign, sourced, foreign sourced hemp products uh, are of no interest to them. Um, what they're focused on is uh, domestically uh, manufactured hemp and interstate commerce. Got it. Okay. So, um, what does that mean for Centuria? What does all of this mean for Centuria? Uh, it's honestly, it was, it was, it was great news for us to hear because hundred percent of our biomass is sourced from outside of the United States. We have federal import, uh, federal import license to bring it into the United States. Um, and we have, uh, FDA approved facilities to, to process that material. Um, so in terms of, uh, federally compliant supply chain, uh, sounds like the DEA is really backing us up that we took the right path 10 years ago. Well, that's certainly good news. Um, why is it structured that way? Why is 100% of the, the growth outside of the U.S.? Well, I think that we simply um, are following the law as best as we can. Uh, the guidance that we've been given by um, Health and Human Services, the DEA, the Department of Justice, uh, the FDA, and the FTC in August of 2016 stated that absolutely no interstate commerce was allowed for domestically grown hemp. And we've been growing uh, outside of the United States uh, for a very long time and will continue to do so until we have explicit instruction uh, from the federal government that we can uh, that we can cultivate here in the United States and engage in commercial activity. Why do you think there is that distinction? Why is it OK? Why is it legal to import it but not grow it here? Uh, you, you'd have to ask your local congressman because we, we don't have an answer to that. I mean, you're talking about thousands or possibly tens of thousands of jobs. You're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue uh, that are uh, uh, leaving the United States um, you know, each year. And frankly, you know, I think uh, the cannabis industry should be very concerned with the disparity in regulations between the United States and Canada. 
Yeah, um, it seems like a massive misstep and a huge missed opportunity. But I guess that's the story of cannabis in the United States as a whole. No, no different here. Um, okay, let's talk about sort of the different uses for hemp. Every time I have a conversation about hemp, there's 5,000 new ways that it can be used. But it doesn't seem that there has been one um, that really has caught fire yet. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there is no sort of crucial go-to use for it today, or at least that I've found. Um, Why do you think that is, and what do you think the first category really to to rise is going to be uh, from use of hemp? Uh, the short answer to that is, is uh, you know, it's the economy, stupid. Um, there are more competitive products out there that do a better job than hemp. And although, you know, people that believe in hippie magic and that hemp can solve all of the world's ills uh, simply are, are not paying attention to very basic economic forces. And so when you look at things that hemp could supplement, such as biofuels, um, or they're used in horse bedding, uh, composite paneling, uh, even hempcrete, uh, you simply find a more economical and better functioning product in the market uh, that exists. And therefore, that's why hemp has not replaced those things. So this this cream, let's talk about the topicals for a second. Uh, I've tried all the different topicals and the pain relief and everything. And I actually was just having this conversation with producer Eric right before the show, which is if you use Icy Hot, um, you get a lot of the same benefits. Is that what you're seeing? Is that what you mean by there's too many other good replacements? Well, uh, dermal dermal application of cannabidiol is a great uh, a great example. So people are saying, well, you know, this is a uh, cannabidiol is great for pain relief. Well, really, it's not. Uh, THC is a powerful anal- an- an- analgesic. Um, you know, ask any researcher that's researching cannabinoids and pain uh, uh, pain therapies, and they will say THC is absolutely uh, the go to major molecule for that. Cannabidiol, not so much. Now, now, if you talk about getting cannabidiol into your bloodstream so it functions um, as uh, anti-inflammatory or an analgesic, uh, but topical application is not the way you want to go. Um, you have very little bioavailability going through the skin. So we, we see that it's, it's likely if you're experiencing some sort of relief from a CBD topical, you're likely experiencing that relief from another ingredient inside that product and not the CBD itself. Oh, wow. Interesting. So, yeah, I've talked to lots of athletes, even some professional athletes that swear by using uh, topicals on their joints and knees and everything. Um, But what you're saying is that it's the other things in combination uh, or not even in combination, just the other things in the product that are giving them that relief. If we could measure uh, cannabidiol penetrating the dermal layer, um, then I would say there's absolutely uh, much more credence to these anecdotal uh, stories that you're getting. But the fact that we we don't have that evidence yet, uh, despite lots of research uh, uh, supporting um, these findings, at this point, we can just say it's anecdotal at best, and it's likely um, the result of something else in that product. Wow. Wow. That is strong. Um, okay, let's go back a little bit and just talk about Centuria. How did you get started? How did you find yourself here today? Uh, I've been in the commercial legal cannabis industry for almost 15 years. Uh, dispensaries, cultivation, extraction and concentrates, uh, even edible manufacturing. Uh, I had the first company to acquire an industrial st- uh, scale cultivation permit in 2009 um, on 44 acres. And relatively speaking, you know, the largest marijuana farm in the United States right now is Los Sueños. 
Munoz in uh, Colorado, and they've got about 36 acres. So we were a little ahead of our time 10 years ago. Uh, Department of Justice uh, also thought we were a little ahead of our time. So uh, that, that, that company got shut down. But um, uh, we ended up pivoting uh, internationally. Um, and uh, once we saw the Farm Bill uh, pass in 2014, uh, we focused on uh, a foreign, uh, f- uh, foreign sourced uh, uh, hemp, hemp biomass and importing it to the United States and creating ingredients based on that. Um, and so, uh, you know, some more recently, uh, we're the first company in, in the cannabis space to cultivate 100 tons and convert it into a retail-ready format. And we did that in the 2015-2016 season. Mm. Wow. Okay. Um, and you've obviously had some great success. You're the biggest now. You were telling me a little bit before the call that you're actually in talks uh, with several parties to, to sell. Um, without getting into too much detail, what can you tell us about how that process is going? Uh, overwhelmingly positive. Um, you know, the fascinating thing uh, about Centuria and other companies like ours is it was never our interest to uh, to be a, a, a CBD manufacturer, a hemp manufacturer. You know, ten years ago, we, we started a forty-four acre nursery with a singular goal, and it was how to grow a thousand acres as efficiently as possible, and most importantly, convert those thousand acres uh, of, of biomass. Into into a retail-ready format, and I think that most people in this industry um, they for, for forget that 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 last step. Um, they think that as long as you put the plants in the ground, that magic for magic. Um, they'll turn into dollars. Um, and so, you know, the real feat of this company was converting a hundred tons, um, you know, three years ago, uh, into a retail ready format and selling it. Um, and now in terms of scaling from a hundred tons to 300 tons last year to a thousand tons, very, very easy for us. All we're limited by, uh, is, uh, market demand. And what are the keys, uh, to success at that kind of scale? I mean, wh- what did you learn along the way doing that? I, I don't know if we have the time to cover all of that. <laughs> uh, can you give me the high level, like two, three points? Y- yeah, the, the, the biggest thing is is mechanization of processes. You know, if you if you look at the best capitalized companies in in in, in Colorado or, or Canada, uh, Tilray is a great example. They put forty million dollars into a one acre nursery site. They have one hundred and thirty five employees, and their average cost of goods is three dollars and fifty cents a gram. Mm. Uh, to me, that's an absolute failure. Uh, of an investment, an absolute failure in terms of market positioning. When you have companies like mine that can grow at $28,000 an acre, uh, when we deploy 500 acre sites, um, mm-hmm. and our cost of goods is, is below two cents a gram. And and what is the distinguishing, you're saying process is the reason that that margin is so much, uh, so much different? A mechanization of processes, machines. Got it, got it. Okay, and so why isn't, why aren't Tilray and others on the forefront of that, why why have you been faster to get there? Uh, one thing I pointed out um, uh, in my book is is the, the 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 biggest failure of cannabis investors and companies in the space today is, is the assumption that consumer models aren't going to change, pricing isn't going to change, the pricing will remain static, that you know the Canadian market can support um, a glut of roughly you know a million kilos in by 2020 of, of flour and somehow the price of cannabis is not going to get squeezed right down to the marginal cost of manufacturing. Um, they think that prices are going to stay at, you know, seven to $12 a gram. Uh, it's our belief that, you know, I think we're going to see prices closer to 50 cents to a dollar a gram inside of three years. 
Okay. Um, and are there any other factors? I mean, I, I know that you're a little bit biased given that it's your company, but um, any other factors that should be considered there? You know, is the quality any different? You know, is there anything else there that would speak to why their cost of goods is so much higher than yours? Uh, quality, absolutely. When you have 135 people tending to every single step of the manufacturing process by hand, your quality will absolutely be superior to the quality of ours. If you're selling an ornamental crop, if you're selling flour, which represents 40 to 45% of any mature market. So you look at California, Colorado, Washington, where we have data um, on, on um, you know, very diversified markets that have been around for more than a few years, you only see the flour market representing roughly 40%. So that means 60% of gross revenues in the cannabis industry are from extract-based uh, products. It's like be concentrates, e-liquids, um, uh, specialized extracts like you know, shatter, uh, live rosin, edibles, um, all of those things um, represent 60% of the gross revenue. Now, if we can produce those products for one one hundredth of the cost of our competitors, uh, we think that's a significant competitive advantage. Got it. Very, very interesting uh, sort of thesis and, and strategy there. But obviously, um, you've been getting some great success from it. Uh, you brought up your book, Tipping the Scale, which is available on Amazon. Uh, full disclosure, I didn't buy it yet, but maybe maybe you should. Uh, I understand. Uh, I heard you don't like your book very much. <laughs> why, why, why is that? No, I, I feel if you're listening to this podcast, you have no reason to buy my book. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I did not write a book to sell books. I wrote a book because I was getting asked the same 20 questions by my friends three to five times a week for the last year and a half. And I felt like I could make a, a 10 page pamphlet on, you know, why not to make certain cannabis investments. Very, very simple things. Uh, if, uh, if, if a company or an investment uh, lacks the right uh, executive team, you know, don't invest. If they have a very labor intensive manufacturing process where you have hands touching plants or you, you see a lack of mechanization, run for the hills. Um, and frankly, with 99% of investments that I look at uh, week by week, um, everyone seems to be duplicating the same uh, model of cannabis business. Got it. Yeah. I think you're the first guest to sort of unplug their, their, their book or their product, but uh, I love it. Super authentic. Um, uh, maybe some other advice that you could give uh, to founders. There's a lot of founders and entrepreneurs, investors that listen to this show. Um, and I understand that you don't think it's a good idea for someone to become a California cultivator today. Uh, why do you think that is? Uh, well, so there, there's a number of reasons why I don't think getting into cultivation is a very smart move uh, right now. I think that if you come from a background of, let's say, if you're uh, growing you know, alfalfa or wheat or, or other, other row crops in the thousands of acres in the Central Valley and you want to pivot to cannabis, uh, that's actually a great move into cultivation. I think for someone that has experience growing phenomenal cannabis under their four lights in one of their rooms in their house and they say, well, I could do this with a hundred lights, um, you're essentially taking an archaic business model and you're simply making it larger without gaining any efficiencies. And it's those types of business models, especially those that are converting electricity into photosynthesis um, that will fail uh, inside of a few years. Because I think greenhouse technology is going to be where 100% of our flower comes from. 
Um, I don't think we're going to see any warehouse cultivation in three to four years. Um, and then I think that we're going to see the concentrate market or concentrate derived products, including edibles, drive the price of flour down because it provides a great alternative uh, to the consumer market at a fraction of the cost. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. What do you think that means? How do you feel about that being the future of the cannabis industry? I'm overjoyed. I mean, I, I was in I was in the dispensary market. Uh, walked in my first dispensary in 2005. Uh, by 2009, um, I had owned, operated, turned around uh, over a dozen dispensaries, um, and and really working hands on at that level gave me gave me a great insight to the consumer psychology uh, of cannabis cannabis users. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, and the one thing that I always felt is that in terms of the cost of manufacturing versus the retail costs of cannabis. It's so out of whack um, and consumers are really getting taken advantage of uh, that I'm, I'm definitely a huge proponent of you know, cheap cannabis um, uh, coming, coming to market as soon as possible. I think we all are. Um, I think some people, well, look, in, in light of new laws, uh, I'm seeing some $80 eighths in the city of San Francisco because of retail taxes, et cetera. And, and it's really outrageous when you think about, like you just discussed, the relatively low cost uh, of producing this stuff at scale. Um, it's sort of baffling, I think, to a lot of consumers. Let's talk a little bit more about the future. Um, what's the future of Centuria look like? Uh, so whether we end up selling the company or we simply just raise more capital and go into markets like California, Colorado, and, and Canada in the next 12 months, uh, Century is going to look exactly the same. Um, and, and that's in growing our, our extraction capacity uh, to probably 10x of what it is now, um, which you know, I think therefore continues to drive the cost uh, of ingredients down. I think we're going to see um, you know, expansion into uh, uh, consumer products in the next year. Um, we're very excited about that. Um, we, we still don't have a single uh, retail product in the market, but we're absolutely um, bullish on backing. Um, uh, yeah, yeah uh, re- retail products in the space. Yeah, um, but that's not to say that people haven't experienced your products. Uh, can you talk about uh, the pretty wide range of your customers? Uh, well, I mean, I can't disclose exactly who our customers are, but if you Google anything involving CBD, you're going to pull up, you know, um, most of our clients. We have uh, over 80 clients now. Um, a lot of them are CBD only uh, 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 companies, and we have a number of pharmaceutical companies uh, that use our products. Yeah, without naming any names, can you talk about segments? You know, what what kind of products would people experience this in? Uh, we see we've seen a lot of growth in the e-liquid market. So a lot of vape companies that have CBD lines are sourcing from us. That's a pretty significant source of revenue in our company. Um, uh, other products that actually are in the market, and not just uh, research-based uh, uh, clients, uh, are we're seeing a, a single-serving um, you know soft gels. Um, which I think is the future. I think that, you know, multi-serving edibles hopefully will be phasing out. I think it's grossly irresponsible for the THC space to be putting those things into the market. Um, and I'd like to see, you know, all, all, all edibles be, be single serving, you know, at that, you know, 10 or 20 milligram maximum uh, dosage. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, no, it's um, especially for new consumers. It's so overwhelming. 
Um, and the education around, oh, just have a little bit or make sure you like, it's just too much. I don't know. I know that there are medical patients that need large amounts of THC, but I agree. I think it's irresponsible. Um, let's talk about just the, the future of hemp a little bit. Um, you know, how many of those, uh, whatever thousands of use cases will become real? Well, we absolutely know that 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 hemp-derived uh, cannabinoids are going to continue to be an absolute uh, uh, blockbuster revenue channel uh, for hemp. I think that we're going to see more localized um, uh, uh, channels emerge uh, as industries uh, develop. I, I think that plastics could be a huge portion um, of, of, of hemp revenues. Um, you know, things like animal feed and animal bedding uh, will regionally, I think, become significant uh, as, as the market grows too. Okay. Got it. I, I like that it's a very reasonable prediction. Um, you didn't say, you know, hemp is going to take over the world and we're all going to be wearing hemp and everything's going to be hemp. Um, there is one company that I find particularly uh, interesting. Are you familiar with a company called Bascor? Uh, I am not. Okay, interesting. So um, I'm going to butcher this, but uh, apparently they have developed um, a way to better lubricate oil drills with some hemp derived solution. Are you familiar with any kind of application like that? You know, it's funny. Uh, our, our, our laboratory in Boston, uh, they specialize for the last two decades in uh, specialized lubricants, um, primarily for, for, for hard drives before solid state hard drives really kind of mm. took over. Mm. But for, for 20 years, they were uh, uh, producing a significant portion of the industry's lubricant for, for those hard drives. We have not found uh, anything... <clears throat> that is hemp derived uh, that uh, mimics uh, such lubricants, but I'm sure it exists and I'm you know, overjoyed that someone's found another use for this plant. Yeah, no, just fascinating application I, I really would have never uh, thought of. Uh, well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, this is the point where you can plug whatever you would like. How could our audience help you? Are you guys hiring for anything? Uh, yeah, how, how can we help? Uh, don't buy my book. I would say just, uh, uh, you know, if you guys uh, we, we're, we're huge, you're huge fans uh, of an organization called Village Enterprise. They give grants to uh, extremely impoverished individuals. Uh, individuals in Kenya. Uh, each grant usually pulls approximately 21 people out of extreme poverty. They have a great track record. The founders of Kiva used to work for Village Enterprise. Go there, donate 10 bucks, feel good about yourself. Awesome. Well, that's a good place to wrap it up as I think as any. Thanks so much, Michael, for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah. And we'll see you next time, guys.